Welcome to Design Talk. I'm Alan Higgins. This episode is part of a series of interviews with game designers, publishers, researchers and the public recorded at the Essen Spiel. Okay, so I'm Alan Higgins. I'm an educator in Dublin. And I'm interested in games in the game industry. And uh, could you introduce yourself? I'm Pete Ward. I work at marketing at Rebellion Unplugged. And we're here just showing off all of our published games and the games we've got coming up. So we've got Sniper Elite, which is our big release from 2022. We've got Ian Livingston's Judge Dread, which is coming out towards the end of the year. And we've got a game called Joyride, which is a prototype of a game we're bringing out at the start of next year, or we're bringing to Kickstarter at the start of next year. And we're really just showing the games off. Unfortunately, we're not able to sell, but we just want to show the games and let people have fun playing them. Explain that to me, why you're not able to sell, why you're not selling here. Uh, various tax reasons. <laughs> okay, okay. Nothing to do with Brexit. Uh, I think it is Brexit related. I don't understand. Our finance department is in charge of that. Fine, no problem at all. So you've got... An amazing position here. I, I'm sh- sure you didn't realize you were going to be setting up right in front of the main entrance. No, no. We, you know, you're, you're used to Hall 3 and Hall 1 having the crowds coming in. Uh, but it's great to be right by the entrance here at Hall 7. And just quickly, the genres that you publish in, uh, strategy, area control? So what we try and do is we try and give uh, quite thematic, immersive experiences, but trying to keep the rules overhead and the playtime at the lower end. So Sniper Elite, for example, it's a hidden movement game. Uh, a lot of those take two to three hours to play. Sniper Elite, you can usually get a game done in 45 minutes to an hour. Similarly, Joyride is aiming to be you know, a, a fast-paced racing game that you can quickly play, set up, have as many races as you want. So really aiming to be uh, accessible, fast-paced games. So where, where, are you, where do you design? Um, where's your headquarters? So we're based in Oxford. Um, we're part of Rebellion Developments, which is a video game publisher. Uh, and Rebellion also owns 2000 AD, so we also have some 2000 AD licensed games. Uh, so that's like Judge Dredd and things like that. Tell me about the synergy you get between being both a tabletop and a video game sort of uh, corporation. I mean, it's really fascinating because, you know, we've, we've worked with other uh, working board games. You talk to a lot of people who play a lot of board games talking to people who play video games they can bring a whole new perspective on different map designs different mechanics that can work because there are things that happen in video games that you wouldn't necessarily think are going to translate well to board games but then surprisingly they do really really well Um, and just getting that perspective from someone who doesn't necessarily play a lot of board games but does do a lot of gaming can be invaluable in trying to make your games as as, uh, immersive and like accessible as possible just on that, um, uh, you're the first person I've, 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 I've met who talked about video games as a prompt for prototyping board games. I've normally heard of it the other way around, where the, the, the tabletop, the paper prototype, informs the video game. So I think the way it, 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 the way it works for us is, you know, we've got a big team of uh, video game developers at Rebellion, and they are all very keen to take a look at the games we've put together. So we'll usually go to them with a prototype and they'll be able to give opinions that might be things that we hadn't thought of. Uh, they're not necessarily all solid gold, but it's just really valuable information to get. Um, uh, programmers, do they tend to be tabletoppers too? A lot of them are, yeah. A lot, just, I think gaming in general. So uh, 
video games. There's a big board game group of Rebellion who meet up and play board games. So it's a it's a good crowd to be around for designing board games. And when you're talking about your design, you're based in Oxford. Do you have a local community of of play testers that you get involved that you involve in your prototyping, or do you do it wholly in house? We do a lot of it in house, and there are local like there, there are lots of great board game stores in. Uh, in Oxford, like Thursday Meeples, for example, the board game cafe, uh, because we started just before the lockdown started. Um, so we had to adapt to do a lot of stuff digitally over things like Tabletop Simulator. And that's kind of continued. So when it comes to playtesting games, we can playtest with a varied group of people from all over the world, which is great. But, you know, at times you do really want to get a physical thing in front of people so you can, you know, we like to see how it feels, how it looks. It's a different experience, but uh, yeah. It's um, intriguing, I think, that the the COVID and the lockdowns made tabletop a lot more digital, and yet people come back to the in-person personal. I think it's yes and, isn't it? For you? I think so, yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the things I found, especially from the marketing side, is uh, if you show people the game on Tabletop Simulator and let people play the game on Tabletop Simulator or other digital platforms, that's not them playing it there and thinking, oh yeah, perfect, I don't need this game. We, people who play board games, you know, we love the physical thing. And having that digital option has been great when we haven't been able to get together. But now that we can, and I know for me personally, you just want to actually have the physical thing on the table, people around you and playing the games. So I don't think it's, it's something that's taken away from the physical at all. Yeah, and we talk about physical, but I think... Um do you have a sense that it's that direct connection with others that you get in playing in the round or around the table? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I did a lot of video gaming when I was younger and I found myself drifting more and more to tabletop games in part because it's great to be able to play with friends who are far away, but you lose something in not actually having people there. A lot of video games I played in the past, you would sit around a sofa and play on the same TV. As that's drifted further and further away from what video games are, board games have been like the perfect thing to fill that void maybe a, a wrap-up question on that issue of digital physical is there or have you seen or have you experienced any productive hybrid where you've got you've got people present but you've also got people who couldn't be there but are participating virtually we haven't for any of our games yet oh that's not true actually uh when we did some of the playthroughs for sniper elite um one of the things that work quite well is it is something that you can play remotely because you can have one person having the way the game works is you've got a sniper board and a main board and you could have those two groups of people in completely different locations and they would still have all of the information they need so seeing people play a board game together separately like that was was really interesting but from a development side we've been able to either all get together or all do things digitally not a not a hybrid of the two yet right and um we didn't touch on it but why Spiel? Why, do, why have you come from the UK to Spiel? And what other trade fairs do you, do you go to? I mean, it, it's, you know, it's the biggest, biggest show in Europe. It's, it's the one you want to be at. Um, but we also go to UK Games Expo, which is nice and local for us. Uh, over in the US, there's Gen Con uh, and uh, Pax Unplugged we'll be going to later this year. Um, it's great to be at these shows because, you know, we produce the games in the office, sell them. It's nice to actually be around people playing them and seeing people's reactions to them, which is, you know, it's such a uh, pleasurable experience to be able to it's see what people you do having it for, fun. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the end result. Um, 
and yeah, it's just nothing beats it. You know, people sitting around enjoying your games. Right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so I'm here with Duncan Malloy from Rebellion Unplugged, and uh, we're going to talk about... Well, tell us a little about the games that you've been involved in designing. Oh, God. Uh, I would probably describe myself more as a developer than a designer, though I have uh, quite a few design credits under my name. Okay. I uh, founded the board game line at Osprey Games a number of years back, so uh, would have been the lead developer and kind of designer on some of the spin-offs of their titles, so stuff like... um, the Undaunted series with David Thompson is one that I would have first published. Uh, Spiel the Aris nominee Cryptid, which I was very proud of. Um, games like The Lost Expedition, uh, a couple of Martin Wallace titles like Wildlands, um, bunch of stuff. That's an amazing uh, bio. Tell me, um, you make a distinction between designer and developer. Yes. What do you see as the distinguishing difference between the role? Uh, gets very blurry very quickly um but uh i think from a from a purely industry perspective a designer is somebody with whom a game concept like originates and it needs to be uh coherent enough to uh be worth picking up as a pitch basically and then a developer is somebody who will uh fine-tune Okay. If I wanted to use a comics analogy, I could say somebody who does the pencils and somebody who does the inks. At the same time, though, you say you've got somebody with that vision, the, the, the designer, yeah. and you've got the people around them, the developers, they'd yeah. say. Um, the developers still have a lot of in- input and agency massively, in the yeah. final design, don't they? Massively, massively. And often the developer will work uh, for the publisher while the designer will be freelance, though not always. Right. But yeah, uh, a developer will quite often... Um, have uh, a lot of insight in terms of the the tone and the feel of a particular uh, game, even if not the core underlying systems. So who comes up, let's say, um, who owns the mechanic? Are the mechanics just a language that you all use to sort of communicate design? Or is the, the mechanic also one of those key creative uh, kind of inputs? I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely chicken and egg to an extent, right? Uh, in the sense that, like, uh to to the extent somebody like a mechanic is not copyrightable right but but in a, a aside from the legal sense um the core of a game needs to exist to my mind to be developed i think there can be a muddy line between like a co-designer and a developer arguably yeah. which is perhaps a a wider conversation but to my mind uh and in a lot of the development roles that i have taken on um Something like, uh, let's use the Lost Expedition, which is Per Sylvester game, as an example. Uh, he had the core concept of how the cards interacted. He had a very clear vision for uh, how the decks would work. Um, and uh, it, the cards as published visually are entirely different. But in terms of like mechanically, the balance of like iconography and stuff on that... Um, is very, very close to the original prototype that he put together. What I would have done for Lost Expedition, and it, it is somewhat muddier in my case because I'm the I'm the publisher as well as the developer, um, but 
the you know I would have done the art direction the visual style a lot of the decisions around uh, the character choices and, and what characters were featured in the game um, as well as uh, playing the game often enough to get a sense of the the feel of the game the where the tension lies the feel of the individual decks and making changes to individual cards that uh, better met my needs as a publisher for how I wanted the game to feel during play. Okay. Um, or, you know, balance or whatever else. But what I did in addition to that then is uh, my colleague and I designed all of the promo cards, for example, because they were a lot uh, looser, for want of a better word, but also... Um, you know, had had their own separate tone. Uh, we we designed those internally and just ran them past pair and pair gave us thumbs up on them. Um, so, you know, for the most part, he designed how the deck of cards works, how the iconography works, how players interact with those cards and those icons. We tweaked the cards themselves, the visual representation of those. In the case of the Lost Expedition, uh, I designed the competitive and solo modes. So there was like a relatively, that's probably the most substantial piece of work I did on a game that to my mind, I would I was clearly the developer on rather than the designer. Because even though I designed two of the three game modes, those were really progressions of his, very explicitly progressions of his foundation it's fascinating that uh i think the tabletop um sector and maybe video games too um they like to have a name on the box as in yeah yeah. uh, the game buy but ultimately it is a huge team collaboration so how do you um is there a place for acknowledging all the various contributors like i can see here on your inarguably the art and the this, so, as the uh, aesthetics, everything there. As Rebellion Unplugged, we try to make a point of including everybody who is involved in the uh, design and production of the game. So, like from the production controller uh, to the, you know, obviously you can't name everybody, but uh, the person who led the production on the game, the artist, the graphic designer, the development team, uh, all deserve credit. Uh, even though, you know, their name might not be on the front of the box. Sure, they should only, inarguably be included. Box is I feel only so very, big. very strongly about it, yeah. It's different in tabletop to video games, right? One of the things that I'm very um, cognizant of in other industries is the idea of kind of authorship and the cult of authorship. Uh, you know, and the idea that like a particular indie game might be only associated with the one big name designer who's leading the project um and i think that is a very unhealthy attitude to have particularly in video games in board games it is definitely muddier because it is more likely that a single individual will have single-handedly driven the core experience but that said you know um it, it takes a village to make a board game. That's a bad yeah. analogy. <laughs> but you see where I'm getting at. Like even, even within that reality, yeah. um, the, the work that goes into a game is never the work of a single, almost never the work of a single individual. So Sure, and some publishers actually um, 
when they license a, a product, don't want the uh, creator's name on it. They'll they'll brand it themselves. To my understanding, that's very very rare. In fact, I think often what I've seen is is sometimes the opposite, whereby um, if there's a very high profile designer whose name sells a lot of copies, they will often uh, their names will often be pushed higher. Uh, than other names because it's seen as a marketing hook that people are like oh i like x designers games i will look into this one sure that's true in the indie scene but what about in the high street in the the mass multiples oh in the mass market yeah, yeah. that's a that's yeah with your your you know monopolies or your whatever else oftentimes those will be um in-house designers uh so they will like there will be hesitance often to credit staff members of uh publishers um, I would like to think that wouldn't apply to freelancers, but I would also like to think that isn't necessarily the case in the hobby yeah. industry, which is primarily laboring in silence and isolation and loneliness. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah. The um, you know the the joy of getting a pension paid means you don't get your name in the box often. Is the, yeah. Yeah. Now tell me, um, you're an independent publisher. You're an so, independent designer. Ish. Uh, so we are actually, uh, ironically, this is the Rebellion Unplugged is the second board game company I've set up. Uh, we're not independent, so I set up uh, the board game division at Osprey for Bloomsbury, and uh, Rebellion Unplugged is part of video game and comic book publisher Rebellion. So uh, while working at Osprey, I published two Judge Dredd games, which they quite like the look of, uh, and as a result, then I went to work for Rebellion full-time, uh, running their board game division. So we're an independent uh, company within Rebellion, but we are, uh, yeah, and an entire part of that kind of and wider it company. And gives you the sense. opportunity to have some great licensed uh, assets. Massively, can... yeah, yeah. I, one thing I'm very uh, keen to do is to show people, particularly with Joyride, which is the, the new title, which we have not yet formally announced. So there's a scoop. Okay, uh, well, um, the, uh, That's going to be wholly original, entirely new. Uh, I hate saying entirely new IP, right? But you know what I mean? It's, it's a complete board game disconnected to a lot of the properties Rebellion owns. But by the same token, Rebellion owns a huge amount of uh, characters and worlds and ideas that uh, partially I'm excited to draw from from a like kind of marketing perspective in the sense that there are a lot of people who are excited about you know your, your Judge Dreads, your Sniper Elites, and it's good to get those people into the tabletop. But also I'm excited to draw from just purely as a kind of creative force that there are a lot of really interesting worlds there and really interesting ideas that are a tool for me to play with as much as they're uh, something that will help me sell a title. You know? Yeah, it gives you a great angle to um, develop, uh, take ideas from. I mean, yeah. a dystopian future uh, sort of uh, racetrack here. <laughs> um, so this is uh, just very quickly, what is the essence of this game? So this is Joyride. Um, this is going to be a series of racing games um the idea is each player has a, a car and a dashboard a set of dice and a set of ability tokens that are unique to that car it's a little demolition derby uh, a little um dark future or gaslands if that's yeah, a more yeah. contemporary reference and a little mario kart uh, so each box will have two different maps and each map will have a couple of different variable setups for different player counts uh, there are four checkpoints. You have to travel through the checkpoints in order, though which direction you travel through the checkpoints is kind of up to you as you uh, move along. Fair. And uh, 
you have two moves on your turn. So you have a stack of dice uh, that you roll. They're uh, one to three. And you keep your results from your last round. And you can choose to freeze any of your last round results. And then re-roll any of your other dice. And then gear up or gear down, which is adding a dice to your pool or taking dice away. And then you move twice. You first move your equal to your locked dice. And then move equal to your rolled dice. And you can change direction at the start of those moves, but only at the start of one of those moves. So the faster you're going, the less precision and control you have over your car. And each car takes up two hexes on the board. So one of the key ways you can interfere with your component, or with your opponent rather, is by uh, nudging the back of their car to spin them around slightly to take them off the racing line, knowing that they'll have to slow down significantly to be able to make two turns to uh, right, yeah, get back okay. around. Uh, this is the first time I've seen a racing game that has a hex board um, so completely unconstrained in a sense. So you're literally going through gates and yep. that's the win condition yep. you get through yep. the gates. So uh, get through the gates in order, cross the finish line and two laps and the game is done. Okay, yeah, no, brilliant. And uh, you're looking for playtesters today, are you? Uh, well, not today, although uh, we should have some slots available later in the week uh, if people want to come by, but we're mostly uh, previewing it here for industry people uh, to see kind of drum up buzz ahead of a Kickstarter next year. So. Well, brilliant. I hope you get a lot of interest and uh, you, you get the word out there. As I said before to um, Peter, you're in the perfect spot to get interest. <laughs> yeah, we're right at the back of Hall 6, which I had given up on uh, as kind of we're in the, the lanyards and leatherwork section of the hall. But uh, it turns out we're directly beside the new entrance, which is a fantastic position. So. It's, it's definitely turned out as a win for us. Yeah, I'm very and it's happy not with too it. crowded. It's lovely and spacious. Exactly. No, fantastic. Exactly. Um, you, will you be coming back to Spiel next year? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll be here for the foreseeable. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, yeah. uh, Duncan. Thank and, you. And uh, much appreciated. So I'm speaking with Scott D'Agostino from WizKids, an American company, who have come all the way over to Essen um, and have a huge stand here. You're a publisher, manufacturer. Tell us a little about why you come to Spiel. Uh, Spiel is a wonderful show that is full of enthusiastic people who are very interested in uh, not only our board games. Uh, traditionally, this has been the focus of, of uh, our board game offerings. But this year, we're very excited to uh, show off a lot of our role-playing game offerings as well. In fact, we have two separate booths at the show this year, one in the Miniatures Hall showing our role-playing games, uh, uh, games and games accessories. And then we also have a booth uh, or a stand in the Board Game Hall uh, showing off and demoing our board games as well. So um, is this your first time at Spiel? Uh, the company has been here for a number of years. Uh, I want to say since back in uh, 2012, I think was our first year. Um, and uh, myself personally, I've been here for a number of years, but I haven't been back for probably about five years now. Okay. Um, how many trade shows do you go to over a year? We uh, vary heavily in the U.S., uh, but we do uh, approximately 12 to 14 shows. Uh, that does range from the larger conventions to the uh, smaller sort of hotel shows, I'll call it, um, where uh, it's uh, you know very focused on, on board games uh, or, like I said, the, uh, the conventions 
where we might have not only uh, board games in a, in a booth doing demos, but we might be running tournaments for games like our uh, Heroclix game. Uh, and next year, we look at having our new Onslaught game running tournaments for that as well. Okay, so you're not just a manufacturer, publisher. You're actually kind of, you require, it's community is important to you. You actually run, host stuff. Absolutely. We do have, uh, we run organized play programs uh, at conventions and events like this, and even at local stores uh, in the U.S. and throughout the world. So how does that, how do you make the connection commercially between the sort of community engagement and your business? It's always great to uh, to try to reach out to the community. Uh, certainly, we, we work primarily through the retailers and the distributors uh, to get the word out and to be able to offer them prize support uh, so that they can run events uh, at their stores and have something that exclusive that their customers can come and play for. Okay, so that's quite direct. If you're doing a, uh, a sale point event, you're going to probably see an uptick in your, your, uh, your, your retail, your, your partner there. Um, something like this is very indirect, though, but still you think it's in, important for you to invest in your community? Absolutely, yeah, sure. And, and, and for us here uh, coming to Spiel, uh, to be able to have exposure also in Europe, where we might not be as well known as we are in the U.S. Okay. I know a lot of the um, local uh, traders who come here hope to make at least cover their costs, if not make a profit. Do you think you'll be able to generate enough turnover here over the uh, spiel? We think so. Um, I mean, it's usually not, um, you know, it cuts it close, let's say. You know, we try not to, uh, we try to at least cover our costs. Uh, but uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it is also kind of a marketing expense to be able to, again, have that have the exposure to audiences that we don't uh, typically engage with directly. Right. And uh, I suppose it's the it's the biggest tabletop fair in the world, I guess, I gather. Yes. OK. And and your area at miniatures, uh, strategy um and very much a D&D &D emphasis. We are, uh, we are a licensee with uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast to do all the miniatures painted and unpainted for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we also do uh, board games and, uh, and other uh, games that are Dungeons and Dragons licensed. And uh, we also uh, work with Pathfinder as well. So uh, anything that has to do with role-playing games and role-playing uh, game accessories, uh, we are involved in, very happy to be working with these companies. Are you also investing or, or experimenting with your own titles? We do, have, uh, we, we do have miniatures that we make that are under what we call our 4D line, um, and uh, those are unlicensed. And that tech tends to be things that are just sort of generic miniatures, like if you just want some some barrels and benches and things like that that aren't necessarily uh, specific to a uh, to an intellectual property. Okay, and um, I mean some of the accessories you've got here. If I was a D and D uh, back in the day, that would have been magic for me to have a table uh, top like that, a worktop like that, with the, the sort of environmental pieces you put down. That's it's beautiful. Oh, yes. The, so the uh, the line that you're referring to is our Warlock line. That is one that is uh, our, own, uh, our own product line, and that's to be able to assemble your own dungeons or town or, uh, or caverns. And uh, it's small, uh, small squares that you can uh, configure and, and clip together and build out your own uh, uh, three-dimensional dungeon or uh, setting. So I want to get clear in my head the distinction you'd make between um, 
the uh, accessories, which is obviously it's a huge part of your business, and your partnerships with title um, uh, publishers like uh, um, Wizards, of, Wizards of the Coast, the D and D family, and in, and your, your own stuff. Do you, are you actually designing your own games too, in parallel with all of that? Um, we we do. Uh, we are a publisher. We work with outside designers. Um, we typically don't have uh, do design in-house okay but we do reach out or have people who reach out to us who are game designers and then we'll decide if we want to follow through with actually publishing the game okay tell me a little about onslaught is this ready to roll uh, or is this something you're just trialing at the moment we are showing off onslaught here this is actually the first time we're showing off a full base set we've had uh, at gen con in uh, the united states which is uh, the biggest show in the u.s uh, the pre our preview kit, which was just a truncated version of the game, but this is a game that's going to release in January. It is uh, licensed with uh, Wizards of the Coast, so it's a Dungeons and Dragons onslaught uh, miniatures game. It is a skirmish game, so it's a two-player head-to-head uh, -head game where you are uh, uh, playing your faction versus your opponent, and uh, the there is also uh, sort of NPCs or creatures that are on the map. So you can score points by either just going directly at your opponent and uh, and knocking out their characters, or knocking out the uh, the the NPCs or the uh, the monsters that are on the map, and even collecting treasures on the map as well. So if you were going to talk about this kind of a mashup genre, I think between um, uh, two two player competitive two player like Magic the Gathering or something, and a bit of dungeon crawling. In a way, it's kind of uh, in the middle. So it's uh, it's it's uh, most people are familiar with Dungeons and Dragons as a role-playing game. This is really focuses on the combat system itself. Uh, if you're familiar with the rules for for Fifth Edition, then you are already ninety percent up the learning curve on how this game works because it really does pull directly from the rule set and and focuses on head-to-head -head combat uh, in the game. Using, using miniatures. And the beautiful thing about this game is you can use whatever miniatures uh, matches the character class. So uh, each, of, each of the characters that you're playing when you build out your faction will have a character class on it. In the game that you purchase, there will be, so for example, there's uh, paladins and warlocks, and there's a miniature that comes in the game. But if you have your own paladin uh, figure that you've painted uh, and, and you prefer, you can just use that miniature so that you are you can have your own uh, flavor or your own uh, 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 personality in your team, even though it has the same gameplay. You're just swapping out the miniature. Look, I'm, I'm fascinated by the growth of, or at least the resilience of miniatures as a separate uh, sort of a section of spiel here. And you, you, you fit in both areas naturally, but... Uh, what is it that people go for miniatures for? There are display pieces, there are play pieces. Um, people paint their own, they buy painted. Yes, and we offer something for everybody. So we do offer uh, unpainted miniatures uh, for people who want to paint, and we partner with uh, Vallejo Paints um, to, uh, to have even paint kits uh, so that, that uh, stores or people can just take it home and have the paints to go along with it. Uh, or if you just want to have the painted miniature so you can slap a miniature down the table for your next game. And uh, one of the things that we've been doing over the years is increasing the size. So some of the pieces that we have here are uh, Tiamat, a gargantuan figure. 
which uh, is you know certainly intimidating if you want to play against it, but it also makes a great mantelpiece if you want to just put it up on display. Yeah. Look, um, thanks for uh, telling me so much about your uh, what you're uh, showing here today. And um, one final question I wanted to ask about S in itself. Um, does it facilitate? How does it? How, what does Essen turn on for you as a publisher, manufacturer coming over here? I know some of your, your stand staff, they're not WizKids employees, they're, they're contractors, multilingual. What is it about Essen that, that enables you to work here? Uh, Essen is fantastic just because it's so centrally located in Europe uh, and it draws from so many countries. So we have fans that, uh, that come to this show. It's sort of a you know, it's a collection. It's almost like everybody's coming into uh, uh, like a like a family gathering of of people with like interests uh, coming to this show, and everybody looks forward to it each year, uh, and be able to to get uh, and pick up all the games that might be hard. So, especially for uh, a publisher like us from the U.S., it might be hard for some of our European fans to find our games uh, because they might not, depending on what countries. Uh, we're still reaching out and working with local distributors to get our games um, into into Europe. But this is a place where uh, people can come in and pick up games from all companies all over the world to really build out their collections. And sure, and it's a place that publishers, manufacturers, designers can come and set up very quickly. And Essen sort of supports you in that, in a sense. It's got the resources to hand. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good point. Also, even other designers, this is a great place for us. We've we've met designers, like I mentioned before, that we work with outside designers. We've met a lot of designers of our games at this show and then have built relationships off of uh, off of the meetings and uh, people we've met at this show. Well, Scott, I hope you have some time to tour the rest of the holes here and um, not just man the sand, as they say. Yeah, oh, absolutely. First day is always about sales, uh, you know, but uh, but as it calms down a little bit, I will be able to walk around on some of the later days, but I'm looking forward to it myself. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Okay, so I'm talking with John Manka, lead game designer with Ion Game Design in Sweden, from Sweden. Um, John, you're here at Spiel, and just quickly uh, introduce yourself. Well, uh, I'm the lead game designer, as you said. I have been working on many different things, but my, my passion uh, and my dream occupation from childhood until age nine, when I said, I want to be a game designer, a board game designer, uh, that has been board games, um, but that was not a career at the time. But eventually, I've turned it into a career, and now I on Game Design, uh, I founded it and, and are running it together with Basim Yannick, uh, who is the CEO. Uh, and we are focusing on board games, and specifically board games based on real facts, both from the content and assets and the mechanics. Uh, so that's our hallmark. Tell me, um has the industry matured to the extent that it is a, a career path that people can sort of aspire to and take, or is it always going to be a random path? I, I don't think, yes, it has matured, and yes, it's at least almost a career path in board games. It's a definite career path in the digital game way, and, and digital games have really helped board games to grow, and, and still I think board games, the last 10 years, board games are growing faster than digital games, but it's still much, much smaller, obviously. 
Uh, I think, um, yes, the industry has matured, matured um, and uh, you can you can really have a career in, in board games today. And there is also a, there is also the faculty of being in a niche market. So if you just are steadfast and, and believing on this uh, path and the dream, pretty fast you become a player, so to speak, in that area because there are only so many companies in the world doing it. So um, yeah, I, I would advise anybody who has the passion for it to, to try. And without being uh, divulging commercials, there it does pay for itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So and it's a yeah. We have we have ten employees. Fantastic. Uh, that's fantastic to go from what a, a small number to ten. Yeah, to from zero to ten in in uh, eight years. Okay. And where do you see the future? Yeah. Well, for for us, uh, we are we are going into um, so for in our case we have deliberately had a, a um, strat strategy from 2018 onwards to first expand our product catalog uh, and we now have 25 games and now we're going to slow that down and start with product um, uh, development no not development it's called product yeah well enriching the products that sell well or do well um, and, and aim for add-ons expansions and so forth on those and maybe have one or two more new games each year instead of five or so we had the last right. couple of years. Um, and so that's the game side of it. But then as part of, of enriching or, or growing these game IPs, uh, we are looking for, for example, educational material. So all these games are based on facts and they are, everybody says, wow, this should be in the schools because it's actually real space facts in the space games and so forth. So we're looking into making some kind of uh, extra material that could lead a, a, a person who is um, a teacher or, or so in, in to use this. And we're also looking into uh, collaboration with other game companies on making, uh, you know, parts of our games. So you kind of sneak educational content into the subject matter and, and the, the, the game itself. Yeah, or, or sneak or sneak. We, we are sneaking it into it because not the, it's not the, the the goal is to make a game about um, really facts because we find it's so rewarding and we find that something we love about board games is the untold or unscripted I would say narrative that emerges when you play the game and that narrative becomes much stronger and much more memorable if you are for example going to Jupiter but you crashed into the red spot or didn't manage to reach you know IO because of the there's waves from the sun that struck you, uh, which comes every 11 years. Instead of going to planet gray and finding yellow cubes yeah. that you travel back to some random place you never heard of. So you, your memories of these are much stronger. But in addition, uh, you actually learn about the matter. And we don't sim do simulations. So what you, when you play a game about, let's say, the Viking era, I made a game about the Viking era, it won't be the story as it was but it will be a version of it based on all the facts that were present at the time so it's a sandbox of you to that you can you can try and, and find your little story in, uh, and having fun at the same time and this is when games and learning really work together because if you make a game where you understand now I'm supposed to learn these things then the game falls and it 
it's very hard to make it fun. You need to, you need to kind of not understand that this is made for you to learn something. And we're not doing the games at all to, to make people learn anything. But they are, because we're just putting the facts in there and only ma mattering that it, we want it to be a game. Then it will be a deliberate decision and activity to make some kind of study material or, or things that, that the teachers can use. But that will be, you know, uh, as, as a path or a curriculum uh, for them. Right, to, yeah. No, and that, that's one of the, I mean, one of the things we're, we're working on uh, coming two years. Yeah, I, I think any, anyone who plays knows when they're being, it goes from being a, a, a sort of classroom experience to a fun play experience. Exactly, yeah. So you, you're, you're definitely, tell me the, um, the what seems you've done uh, succeeded at is creating a narrative games, narrative board game without too much overhead. Like, a, how did you do that? It seems like a core mechanic that you've solved. Yeah, uh, I don't know solved, but we have the when we uh, build a game and you have it based on real facts and you have it a bit sandbox and open. Um, it's the narrative almost comes by itself because the human mind always wants to find reasons and and, and you know logics between what's happening, and you will inevitably create a narrative within the group that is playing. So I would say, try, don't try harder, try less, but make it more open. And then you can, and, and base it on real facts, in our case, um, and then you will have more, more of a narrative. But it's a little bit like, well, many narrative games are great. I, I, that's, I really think so. Many educational games struggle to be great, let's put it that way. But narrative games really works, but you get it as a bonus when you do it this way. If you do it uh, as a narrative, then you have to put quite a lot of effort into the narrative I design. See. Yeah, we don't yeah, have to do yeah. that. We get a lot of looser narratives as yeah. a bonus. So that, that's, that's actually the, the big challenge in video games. Do you have this authorial nav narrative that controls yeah. the game versus a sort of open-ended storytelling yeah. that the players themselves yeah. arrive at? And you've, you've got that with your... That's, that's what we have, yeah. And, and, and that spans, I suppose, across all your titles. Um, More or less, so yeah. Gets, Titan, Down, Pax, Viking. They're all in the same, the same genre yeah. of, of mechanic, let's say. Yes, more, more or less. I mean, they're, they're, they're the same. Yeah, the, the same kind of, of um, approach, uh, to, game approach to game design and gameplay. Yeah, because they are quite different. There's some. This is a dice game, for example, made for families, whereas Station Stegets, yeah, Stay Quets Whereas Station Fall is kind of a party game for heavy gamers, with tons and tons of things going on, right. and it's a crazy story that emerges from this station being uh, burning up in 15 minutes and you have 15 minutes to do And you things. have a memorable experience during that process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you have it there well as well. If you're going, even though it's very simple, if you manage to go, oh, I met, made it to Comet Halley. I never been there before. Oh, and I did that and before someone else and that someone else instead went to Saturn. You still, you still remember it. And I have to tell you about Stequets. My, I usually design having a as a, a, a um, situation, that's one of my my uh, mental images or core goals. So the situation I had for Stequets is a 36-year-old woman finding one of those uh, maps because that's a big pad. So you rip it off and you write. It's a roll and write. So you write on it and then you rip it off and write on the next one. 
So the man, the, the image was her at her summer house finding one of those uh, that she played when she was eight years old with her grandmother who is now dead. And she remembers it because she can see what happened on that. So we froze the game experience in time. And many other games, the, the, the story is gone because you take it away and you, mem you have it in your memory. But in that one, I wanted to freeze the, those small stories. Um, so yeah, so, but, but yeah, it's, it's all there in all of okay, them, for yeah, sure. Okay, fascinating. Um, do, uh, localization must be an issue for you, for, yeah, the, for well, the titles. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that, that is partly true. But um, most, most issues or problems can be turned into um, opportunities. So we work together with 12 different license partners. And those license partners are licensing because they translate to other languages. So we have license partners in Spain, in Brazil, which is Portuguese, and I was a Portugal, uh, France, um, Italy, uh, it's a great collaboration, Czech Republic, uh, Poland, I think, uh, Russia, no, maybe not, yeah, well. Asia, what about Asia? Uh, we have one in China. Okay. Uh, we, we are looking into one in Japan. Okay. Um, but but not at the moment, but there is, um, we have had fan expansion, so to say, people who are made, you know, fan, uh, and we usually just give them the PDF so they can make a print and play version of the rule book, and then the cards you have to use. Ah, device. that's fascinating. But, but, but it's the license partners that, that solves that problem. Okay, but you're not afraid of print and play as, a, as a, a one means to getting to market too? Uh, well, not. Yeah, well, it's it's more of a, a mean to cater towards the, the players. Yeah. So, um, but we also have all the games on Tabletop Simulator. So you can play test them there if you want. And that one has so simple rules. And that one is from the Moomin. Uh, that's the Moomin characters. Oh, the, this is a classic Scandinavian uh, uh, story, isn't it? Yeah, the Moomin. Moomin, yeah. So we have the license there, there from Moomin characters. Okay. We made a version of this in the Moomin Valley. In the Moomin Valley, okay. Um, so, um, so taking the same essential uh, design elements from yeah. Stegetz to a to Moomin there. version. To yeah. a Moomin version. And then we have, so this is not printed yet, this is just a, a prototype. prototype. But um, I was about to say that we were, t oh, now I, I lost a train of thought. Yeah, no. You talk, we were talking about I have to go back three steps here. Too. So Moomin's uh, language localization. Language, yes. Yeah. So, so these ones, we have our, um, the rules are just two pages. So we, we print 12 rules, 12 languages in this one, so that we publish the language ourselves. And in this one, it will also be eventually 12 or 14 languages. Moomin is, it turns out, very popular in South Korea. Oh. So we're going to translate it to South Korean. Excellent. And Japanese, of course. It's Finland, Japan, South Korea, I believe, Sweden, that's the four that's most That's fascinating selling. that the localization or your market um, sort of piggybacks on the uh, the current popularity of a particular subject yeah. type. In this, in in this Moomins, case, for example, uh, yeah. we have, so we have a few, we have Moomin, and we also have a collaboration with two other IPs, which I can't say anymore uh, right now, but we also have for um, uh, the follow-up of this game, Pax Viking, so before the Viking era was the Vendel era. So and nobody's ever heard of the Vendel era. Not many have heard of it. And that, but they, that's when all these things, the long ships, uh, the, the way of trading and all the things from the, and the Futark, uh, the rune stones, they, they came to be during the Vendel era. Um, and this game is in collaboration with Worldbook. 
uh, which is, maybe you haven't heard of it, but everybody in the United States have heard about it. And that's uh, a company that makes uh, encyclopedias for kids. And those, uh, so we are, we are, they are checking the game and we are like doing this production together with them. So that's not, they don't have a lot of characters, but they have, you know, a network and a name to them. Yeah, and a lot of educational content. A lot of, so yeah. there's your education angle Yeah, there was there. actually they who contacted us, but right. they, because they don't have much games, but they have a lot of educational stuff. Um, and tell me, why do you come to Spiel? Well, this is uh, the, the biggest fair in the world for board games, and we've been here for almost the entire time we've been a company, so uh, it's an important place to meet uh, players in, in, in particular Europe, but also uh, from the world, uh, and also have people play test them and so forth. It's just a our main window of exposure uh, towards uh, players. You mentioned you're a designer, and you've got playtest tables here, um, but what is your core design development process? Do you have local playtesters that you draw upon, or is it in-house only? No, no, we have local playtesters. We have a lot of playtests going on over Tabletop Simulator using our Discord server, because we have most of our customers in the United States. Although we're in Sweden, only, I think, less than 1% of our turnover is in Sweden. Okay. 99% is over in the world. At the moment, US is biggest, then Italy, actually. And then, I think, uh, maybe the UK, um, Canada, Germany, Australia, pretty big, and Spain. Oh, it's great that you have those figures to mar- You know exactly our, where your markets are. If, if our CEO, Basim, was here, she would know exactly. I know roughly. Yeah, 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 very <laughs> But, good. yeah, that's that's... And you know, it's a relatively small company. We're about ten people, and it's uh, business development is an important part of what I do as well. So your products are big box products with a lot for of parts. For the most part, we yep. also have these, for example. You've got some of these uh, smaller ones smaller too, things, yeah. portable um, manufacturing. A, yeah. Where do, do you do you go local? Do you go no, to market? For, for the most part, we have manufacturing in uh, China. Okay. Uh, but we are because of lockdowns and other issues that hit many people. Uh, we have um, looked at alternatives in, in other places. Um, Turkey, Poland, Lithuania, no, Lit- Lit- Latvia, I think Spain, uh, South America. We're looking for something in Mexico. We're looking for something in Brazil. Uh, yeah, so, so we're looking at all of those. And... Uh, Oh, here we go. Customer just uh, passing by. Yeah. So, anyways, John so has we, to we, talk to then we, we want to have more than one place, uh, but just for redundancy. Yeah. But uh, for the, these ones are all produced in or manufactured in China. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, fantastic. Um, but you're exploring other op- options potentially. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, I think I've, we've had a wonderful conversation and yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Sure. And I hope you ha- get a chance to wander through Spiel yourself. Do you plan to visit any other yeah, stands? Yes, I will, I will for the most part be walking around and having meetings uh, with other companies and so forth. So I'm here, you know, an hour here, an hour there and you just happen to catch me. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Today. No problem. Thank you for listening to this episode. Music is Hades from the album Chromatic T-Rex by Ben Prunty.